0: it was incredibly intimidating disillusioning because i was a young woman who had been told i could do anything and i got to this kitchen and it all just disappeared because it didn't matter who i was where i came from what culinary school i went to i had zero work experience in a kitchen and kitchens are fast And so there was an enormous amount of pressure. There was an enormous amount of hierarchical politics that I didn't understand. I was smaller and weaker physically than most people in the kitchen. And I was a woman. So I had a lot more to prove.
1: It starts with just taking that leap. You have To work hard, you have to be incredibly smart. Choose something that, even if it fails, if it fails you are going to be proud of. Doesn't matter how badly you got beaten, enough. be kind, be kind, be kind, become a better person, a better leader, with a better business. Go with your gut. <laughs> this is Finding Pounders. I'm Samuel Donner, and this is episode two of our series on food, conflict, and unity. In this series, we'll be exploring the life stories of culinary pioneers, those who seek to transform cuisine, preserve culture, and unite the global community. Today, we'll be talking to Gail Simmons, a food writer, author, and longtime host of Bravo's hit food series, Top Chef. Gail's story reveals the journey of a passionate young writer eager to distinguish herself from her mother and discover her own path in food. From crying over the heat of a crepe skillet to becoming the judge of one of the world's most successful reality food shows, Gail's story encapsulates the pursuit of passion, unwavering willpower, and the determination to pave one's own path. Oh, and a rancid steak decomposing inside a small New York apartment. But let's not get ahead of ourselves here. Gail's journey may bring her to the States, but doesn't start there. To understand her roots, we have to head across the Canadian border and into the towering skyline of Toronto.
0: My mother is Canadian. She grew up in Montreal and moved to Toronto in her 20s. My father's from South Africa. He was born and raised in a small town in the center of South Africa. So he left South Africa in his 20s.
1: Wait, so that's a very big melting pot of different cultures that your parents absorbed.
0: My father being South African, we spent a lot of our childhood in South Africa because that's where his whole family was. And that certainly informed so much of who I am. And I have so many memories as early as when I was five years old of the long plane rides with my parents and my two older brothers to South Africa for trips to visit my grandparents. Growing up, South Africa was an incredibly informative place.
1: How did you talk about yourself? Did you say, like, I'm half South African?
0: I absolutely identified as half South African. So much of my culture, of the things we ate, of our travel experience was informed by South Africa. And also, you know, I grew up in a Jewish household.
1: Did that come into the the culinary tradition?
0: Of course it did. I mean, everything does. You're not a Jew unless you really understand Jewish food.
1: And I must be elevated with your mom and her background.
0: It was to some extent. Um, Interestingly, my mother was an amazing cook. She ran a cooking school out of our home. She wrote a column in Canada's Biggest Newspaper about food when I was young. It was her way of being able to stay home with us as children and work from home but still be in the workforce and do something she loved. You know, most moms in the neighborhood were like getting their first microwaves and getting out into the workforce. She was, you know, cooking from scratch and scouring Chinatown and all the different farmer's markets around Toronto for local ingredients and interesting things to cook and inspiration. She really saw it as craft and skill and, and, and family.
1: Tradition and preparation like this adds a sort of depth to food that you certainly don't get from tossing a frozen dinner into a microwave or grabbing a burger through the drive-thru. Gail grew up seeing food as so much more than something that had been hastily tossed together on an assembly line. It was an expression of identity, a tool for connection. It was a symbol of her mother's hard work, creativity, and love. While she learned the complex craftsmanship behind food at home, she also lived in one of the most diverse food cities in the world. With top-tier restaurants ranging from Canadian barbecue to Sri Lankan roti, residents of Toronto know just how culturally immersive food can be. But it wasn't until Gail left for college that she realized just how unique her outlook on food was.
0: The last three years of university, I was living in an apartment with roommates, with friends, and we kind of cooked just to survive, more or less. And only in my last year did I discovered that cooking was actually really fun and wanted to learn more, so I would call my mom for recipes. I remember she sent me an envelope with photocopies of all of her recipes to cook from. More and more, I started having people over and cooking for my roommates, uh, but it wasn't like I was making five-star, multi-course meals. I just liked cooking and loved eating out and loved the culture of restaurants and food in Montreal. And it was around that time where I got this inkling that maybe I could do something in the food world. And I truly didn't associate that with my mother because what my mother did was so much about teaching people to cook. She was really a teacher in a lot of ways. And I was thinking about wanting to be a magazine writer.
1: Your mom was writing and cooking food and Then you became a writer that also began to like cook really well. Why do you think you didn't see that connection or like, were you trying not to see that?
0: Because I was 20 years old and I didn't want to be like my mother. You know, when you come home from college, every single one of your parents, friends asks, what are you going to do with your life? And my answer when I would say is, I want to work in the food industry and I want to be a food writer. I'm thinking of going to work for a magazine or whatever. And they all, of course, said to me, oh, that's wonderful. You're just like your mother. Like, of course they all saw that. And I would grip my fists and like run out of the room annoyed and be like, no, I am not. I am my own person and I'm going to do it differently. And I'm going to do it my way. And it's different than what my mom did. My mom never pushed me. In fact, my mom wanted me to go to law school even 10 years into my culinary career. Every mother just wants the easiest path for their children. And she also knew that the restaurant and food industry was a difficult one. It is not guaranteed. She didn't know what my path was going to look like. And so she just was worried about me. And, And the restaurant industry is tough.
1: The restaurant industry is brutal, which sort of explains why young Gail was so adamant that she made this choice all on her own. She wasn't mindlessly choosing to go into food because her mom had. This was her passion. She took it seriously. Besides, the kind of food writing she wanted to do was completely different from her mom's. Her mom focused more on the tactile aspects of food, explaining the steps to creating a dish. But food criticism, the kind of writing Gail wanted to do, hones in on the human side of food. It analyzes the restaurant atmosphere and flavor choices of a recipe while weaving in cultural context. It recognizes that food isn't just about consumption. It's a door for conversation, an opportunity for learning. And as Gail explored dishes and restaurants with her new college friends, I'm sure this became more and more obvious. But after graduating, it would take Gail some time to figure out how to translate her culinary curiosity into a career path.
0: When I graduated from college and came home, all of my girlfriends who were incredibly motivated, bright women... All had plans and directions and they, almost all of them, knew what they were going to do. They were going to grad school or MBA or med school or going to law school. And I did feel directionless. I knew I was bright and I had a lot of interest, but I didn't know, like, I did not know one clear thing. My undergraduate degree, I did a a BA in anthropology and Spanish language, and it was not clear that that was going to get me a job. Like, what was I going to do with that? My family friend said, well, why don't you just write down on a piece of paper what you like to do? Don't worry about, like, job titles. Just, like, what are you interested in? And I wrote down four words. I wrote, eat, write, travel, cook. And she said, so what's the problem? Like, what's everyone so worried about? Like, you have a job direction right there. And that was the first time anyone had planted the seed that it was okay for me to want to do these things and that this could actually be a job, not just like a dream fantasy side gig, because until then I had never allowed myself to think that that was a path I could take mostly because I felt pressure from my community to do things like be a doctor, be a lawyer. And this felt very alternative to that.
1: So I guess like Toronto Life, National Post, those are where you got your chops or, or started exploring it.
0: That's where I started. I got an internship at Toronto Life magazine for the summer. An amazing uh, city magazine taught me tons about research and fact checking and food and restaurants. And then I worked for the National Post, which was at the time launching as a huge newspaper in Canada. And I was in Editorial assistant there for the entertainment, food, travel section. And it was there when I felt like, well, now I've kind of hit a wall. What do I do next? And my food editor at the time, who I kept going to being like, let me write, let me do more work in the food section, he basically said very outright to me, you don't know anything about food. And that was also a bit of a slap in the face because he was absolutely right. Just because you like to eat doesn't mean. That you can be a food critic. Just because you like to watch movies doesn't make you Scorsese. It was the first time someone had like said that to me and I was 22 and it really woke me up to the fact that like I need some training. If this was my beat, if this was what I truly wanted to do, I needed to dive in and be humbled a bit and get an education in it. How can you expect people to respect you and speak to you in a language that you aren't even fluent in yet?
1: And so I imagine that led to culinary school.
0: was the moment where I quit my job and and decided, well, if I'm going to do it, I'm going to go all the way. I've always wanted to live in New York. I'd spent time in New York over the years, you know, weekends. Of course, New York was just like invigorating and energizing in every way, especially for food. I moved into my friends, like the closet of my friend's tiny New York apartment, and I enrolled in culinary school and never came home.
1: Gail was 22 and she had nothing to lose. Sure, I imagine a lot of parents would be bummed to see their kid disappear into the relentless current of New York life, but this was Gail's chance to discover something bigger, something that could push her in the direction she'd always yearned to go. This was just before the turn of the millennium, when Y2K sat ominously in the horizon, and Gail recognized that sitting around waiting for opportunity just to find her wasn't going to work. She had to seek it out and bend a career to the things that inspired her, eating, writing, traveling, and cooking. Four simple things that would become a guiding framework for her world. But she couldn't become fluent in food without learning the language. And culinary school was about to become her teacher.
0: And I remember within hours of my first day of culinary school, I knew I'd made the right choice. I knew I was like with my people. There were 15 kids in my class from nine different countries. And I say kids, but actually many of them are far older than me, but we all had this common love. And it'd be the first time that I'd ever been in a classroom as like an adult, where I was taking a class just because I wanted to, not because my parents said I had to. And it was a class that I wanted to take because it was a subject I adored. Culinary school, like any school, coddles you in a certain way. I mean, they try to prepare you, they tell you, what it's going to be like out in the real world. But like any school, you're still in that bubble until you go out and have to actually take that theoretical knowledge into the practical universe. And that universe of restaurant kitchens is and was, I mean, also, again, I'm dating myself, but that was 20 years ago. You know, it was it was brutal for sure, but it is certainly, it has had a reckoning in a lot of ways, and it has certainly changed an enormous amount in 20 years. You have to do an apprenticeship to graduate my school. So I thought I would go to a magazine because I knew I never wanted to be a chef. So I was like, why would I even go work in a restaurant? But the people at my school assured me that that's what you need to do because you don't yet speak the language. Like, So they convinced me to go to a restaurant and I actually chose a very difficult, demanding, four star legendary kitchen to cook in my first time out of, out of school. Uh, a restaurant called Le Cirque 2000 which had a long lauded history in New York.
1: The decor is extravagant. The food, exquisite. The guest list, a who's who of the rich and famous. The most
0: magnificent restaurant in the world. New York's legendary Le Cirque. It was a kitchen of like 40 cooks. And it was a big kitchen, two floors of prep kitchens. And I walked in and I was the only woman in the kitchen. There was a few women in the pastry kitchen, but I was the only woman on the hotline uh, in the savory kitchen. And it was incredibly intimidating, disillusioning because I was a young woman who had been told I could do anything. I was raised by a very feminist mother and I got to this kitchen and it all just disappeared because it didn't matter who I was, where I came from, what culinary school I went to. I had zero work experience in a kitchen and kitchens are fast and loose and hard. And there is no room for error when you are delivering a, uh, you know, a dinner experience of that quality. You know, the traditional Western, like French kitchen team is referred to as a brigade. And uh, that is a term that comes from the military. So it gives you a sense of how most traditional European kitchens were run. Uh, I was smaller and weaker physically than most people in the kitchen. And I was a woman. So I had a lot more to prove.
1: Eager to prove herself, Gail charged forward on her journey. While she flourished at culinary school, gaining confidence and skill along the way, maintaining that confidence would be a challenge. She went from a safe, nurturing environment to being on the bottom rung of a rigid hierarchy, one that dates back to the late 19th century. The brigade de cuisine was the unforgiving harshness of the military, and that's what Gail was diving into a male-dominated, ruthless industry where sexism was still deeply ingrained. How many women do you see in this kitchen? Well, I... I <laughs> uh, only me. Uh, Why do you think that is? Well, I...
0: Because hot uh, Cuisine oh. is an antiquated hierarchy built upon rules written by stupid old men. But still I'm here <laughs> because I am the toughest cook in this kitchen. I have worked too hard for too long to get here and I am not going to jeopardize it for some garbage boy who got lucky. Got it?
1: I mean, to put it in perspective, less than a quarter of chefs in the US are women, and less than 7% of American restaurants are run by female chefs. This entrenched power dynamic rattled Gail's confidence and put her under extreme pressure. Determined to earn respect and gain credibility, Gail threw herself into her work.
0: I have so many memories from that time working there. I mean, I have one memory of one of the jobs I had to do every morning was make about 50 crepes. French classic French crepes that I would you make the batter, you have to let the batter rest and then you have to cook the crepes on in this one pan that was designated only for these crepes very quickly in the morning. That was my first task. I have many memories of just being sort of like really worn down by the by the people who I worked with and feeling really like I was not keeping up and I was failing and I have so many moments of standing over that stove making crepes in the morning and just crying. The kitchen was relentless. It wasn't friendly. There wasn't a lot of instruction. It was like you have two seconds to get this and then if you don't then you're out. And I have another memory of one night, I went to grab a sizzle platter, someone had taken it out of the oven and put it on the stove top and said hot, meaning like, don't touch this anyone, it's piping hot. And I didn't hear them and I saw it and my instinct was just to clear it into the dishwashing area. So I grabbed it with my whole hand and singed the five pads of my fingertips immediately. And I screamed and I dropped the pan on the floor. When I screamed, someone in the kitchen yelled out, take it like a man, Gail. And that was sort of the moment that I was like, you know what, this isn't the kitchen
1: for me. Did you find any way to work within that system where you like adjusted to that hierarchy?
0: I did a lot of clenching my teeth, but I also felt really disillusioned at first that as a woman, I was treated differently. And that made me really frustrated because I had never experienced sexism before. I can say what it is now. But at the time it didn't occur to me and I would never have said it out loud. Like I was powerless in a situation with a very specific power dynamic. But it was also the norm, the culture of those kitchens. This was the culture of of the restaurant kitchen so many years ago and it has since changed so much. So I left and I went to another kitchen and I found the next kitchen I went to, which was a kitchen called Vong. It doesn't exist anymore, but it was an amazing chef who is still one of the great chefs of New York, Jean-Georges Vongerich. And I went there and it was a much smaller kitchen. I was still the only woman. Why were you
1: the only one?
0: Because certain kitchens in that culture, women don't want to work there and aren't really given the opportunity because they were pushed out. But I knew from the beginning that I didn't want to be a chef, but I did believe that I wanted to really be a good cook and understand the language of the kitchen. But still, I always knew that it was going to be short lived because I knew I wasn't there to become a chef. I was there to get the experience, to understand a professional kitchen so that I could on the long term write about it.
1: Since Gail's exposure to professional kitchens took place in the late 90s, she was enveloped by the burgeoning toxicity taking over the culinary world. Chefs were transformed from anonymous hands to exalted celebrities, like Kitchen Confidential's Anthony Bourdain. If you're you're not in the restaurant business, I don't think anything I, I say really should apply to your business because you'll probably spend the rest of your life in court. Casually referring to an employee to their face as a genitally challenged, lower-than-whale shit bivalve, whose parents probably commingled with livestock, is probably not advisable if you're running a law firm. But I found that there are the media painted these men as bad boy revolutionaries, people who refused to apologize for their high standards. This troubled genius narrative was used to justify abusive work cultures, like the one in Gale's kitchen. This culture also normalized the idea that young people like Gail should be willing to suffer for their craft. So on top of the grueling physical labor, Gail had to deal with the exhausting psychological toll of manning up to navigate her hostile workplace. But she refused to let disillusionment turn into burnout. She left this kitchen for a smaller, more inviting one and kept her eyes on her ultimate goal, writing.
0: When most of my fellow chefs or cooks were going out drinking, I would come home and I would read. One of the books that was recommended to me was a book called The Man Who Ate Everything by Jeffrey Steingarten, who was the food critic for Vogue magazine. And his column in Vogue was iconic and award-winning in every way. And so he had a book of a collection of his articles. And I read it and like instantly knew like, this is it. Not that I wanted to be Jeffrey. No one could be Jeffrey. I wanted to work as his assistant because in his book, he refers to his assistant all the time. Uh, how one day she's like out in Chinatown searching for an obscure ingredient. And the next day she's at the New York Public Library pulling menus from the 1800s. And it sounds so fun. It's so fun. Right. And it was like all the things that I wanted to do. She, she was testing his recipes and interviewing famous chefs and like all the pieces of what I had been in my mind. Tri- wanting to do, didn't know existed as a job yet. And here it was.
1: Yeah. It's like those things that you wrote down with your family friend, like, like that prompted that conversation. And now it's like all those things that you wrote down are there in that book and that experience.
0: They exist in a job. There are people who do all those things. And so I went back to my culinary school and I brought the book with me and I went to my like career development counselor. And I said, I wanna work for him. Like everything he does is so inspiring and it's so brilliant and I'm so interested. And they said, no joke, he's looking for an assistant. We happen to know, we had spoken to him. What? So they put me in touch and within a week, I got an interview. I went for the interview, It was and still remains the hardest interview I had ever been through in
1: my life. Why was it so hard?
0: He made me taste food, taste wine translate recipes from French and Spanish because I had written on my resume that I speak French and Spanish, which I do, but it was a lesson. And if you're going to put it on your resume, make sure it's true. He put me through the ringer and it was a two and a half hour interview. And I walked out completely thinking, well, that was amazing. I just met my culinary idol. There is no way I got the job. I mean, I know all the mistakes. Like I remember he would correct me. I mean, he did not let anything pass. He asked me like what restaurants I go to. I'd mentioned a great sushi restaurant I'd eaten at that week. He was like, that's the worst sushi restaurant in New York. Like he really (laughs) called me out on everything. And I was like, well, he hates me, but that's okay. Cause that was amazing. Like that was like a wish fulfillment that I'll never get again. That was my New York moment. And uh, he called me a week later and said, let's start what's funny is that when I look back at it, I realized that he wasn't asking me all those questions to get the right answer. He's asking me tough questions to see how I worked under pressure. He just wanted the conversation and he just wanted someone to be challenging him as well. And I loved that he just engaged with me and I did, I I pushed back and I answered his questions to the best of my ability. And he just liked that. I didn't shy away and that I followed through. So that was good.
1: Gail yearned for the kind of creative and intellectual inspiration that she couldn't get from working as a cog in a machine. She'd paid her dues as a chef, but now she needed to climb the rungs of a different ladder. This time, however, it would be different. She wanted this job to be like an informal apprenticeship. Instead of trying to stand out in a sea of competitors, she'd have one-on-one access to an iconic mentor. Unlike the chefs de cuisine, Steingarten expected Gail to express herself. She'd be free to explore, discover, and learn. But once Gail landed her dream job, it was time to work tackling a whole new range of challenges. So it sounds like the dream job that you've been looking for. How did it develop as you got into the thick of it? Was it always like, I love this? Was there any moments that were hard?
0: When I got to work for him, I knew he was a brilliant, quirky person, but I didn't Understand just how challenging a person he was to work with. And it became very apparent as soon as I got there, like he was also kind of of the old school. He truly, in a way, and I think he prides himself on a kind of believing in negative reinforcement, making sure you knew every mistake you made so you never would make it again. It was effective, but it was not easy on my self esteem. And it was not easy in navigating and getting him the finished work that he expected of me and he had very high expectations you know he poked holes in all my research and i remember one article we did about pizza dough and if it's possible to really make at home at the quality of a wood-fired professional oven that first was developing the dough recipe and we tested dough recipes for a month or two um, every day, several recipes. The ratio of flour to water, the different kinds of flour, the humidity, the, you know, the implements and tools, the hand kneading versus kneading it in a stand mixer, industrial mixer. And then it came to, you know, you needed to test it in the temperatures of ovens and how to get a home oven to the temperature it needed to be for the time, you know, for the quick bake of a pizza. And I remember just getting it wrong for him all the time. And, and he was like, no, go back, do it again. It's not right, do it again. And often with no feedback. So I was like kind of working
1: in my head. No feedback. So you're just doing it blind, basically.
0: Sort of. I mean, and he would taste it and we would talk about things, but often it was just like, it's not perfect. And it needs to be perfect. I remember another moment that we all, we can laugh about now, but we were doing an article about, dry aging steak. And he was trying to simulate dry aging prime porterhouse cuts um, in his home kitchen and experimenting with different environments for dry aging. Which is a very complex combination of things to do it right. And at one point, he just left a giant porterhouse on his kitchen counter. You want to just watch the, the way that meat decomposed, basically, to see the process. And then he flew to Paris to research something else. And I was left taking care of this piece of meat, which, as you can imagine, within just a few days was infested with maggots. Because that's what happens oh my to God. rotting <laughs> meat. And I remember him calling from Paris and I'd be like, Jeffrey, there are maggots in the meat. And like, what do I do? <laughs> this is like, I was freaking out. I'm like alone in his kitchen with the maggots and the flies. And the. he was like, put a fine mesh colander over it. That didn't keep the maggots out. Like it didn't. And uh, it was horrifying for me. And he just like, would laugh and be like, deal with that. I don't know. Figure it out, Gail. You're going to be fine. Oh my God. fine. You're going to live. Like, no big deal. And I did. I lived through it. You know, things like that, that were like his way of teaching.
1: But wow, like tough experiences, though.
0: But it was an extraordinary education. Because the flip side was that I learned so much from him and that he opened his world to me. And his world consisted of an enormous amount of food knowledge and, you know, intimate relationships with like every major chef in America and restaurant person and food media person. And I was kind of like tagged along for all of it. And that at the end was an amazing education, you know, going through it. just moments of of challenge along the way.
1: Gail transformed these, well, somewhat horrifying experiences into learning opportunities. Jeffrey had a way of challenging her research, her cooking and practically everything she did. But rather than getting discouraged by it, Gail simply tried again hoping the next time she'd do better. In time, Gail became more comfortable with criticism. She recognized it as a tool she could use to her advantage rather than something that would break her. Jeffrey placed her in uncomfortable situations so that she could learn to push through them, even if it meant dealing with some maggot-infested meat. Working for Jeffrey meant learning resilience, and that's something that Gail would need as she moved up in the industry. I want to go towards food and wine because I know you started there as like a special projects manager, but I want to see how that transitions into top chef.
0: Well, from Jeffrey, I went to work for Danielle Ballou, an incredible chef in New York. And I came to know the, the people at Food and Wine magazine through Danielle. And about two and a half years into my job with Danielle, one of the guys I've become quite friendly with from Food and Wine came to me and said, I'm leaving my job and I think you'd be perfect for it. Would you be interested in applying? And I literally didn't know what his job was, but I was like, yes, whatever it is, because I knew that that was my my chance to finally bring together that dream of working for a major magazine I, I admired and read and my culinary experience. And like, that was my dream from years before at culinary school. And so I... Went and met with the publisher, and we had several interviews, and I got the job. And I went to work for Food and Wine in the towards the end of 2004. And I was working in their marketing and event department for about a year. And towards the end of 2005, because the person whose job I had taken was also a sort of ambassador for the magazine, so he had done a lot of media TV appearances on behalf of Food and Wine magazine whenever they needed an editor to do a cooking demo on the Today Show or Good Morning America or any number of places to represent the magazine to the outside media, he was the one. And when he left his job and I took his place, they needed to fill that hole. So they had put me through some media training Uh, because I had culinary experience. They knew I could do the cooking demo stuff. And they uh, started putting me into these little, you know, cooking segment things that I would do for the magazine
1: from her brand new cookbook.
0: I'm so excited, let's begin. The woman who was the event director for the whole magazine left on maternity leave and decided not to return and they offered me that job. I was running the Food Wine Classic in Aspen, which was the biggest event of the year. But simultaneously, my publisher called me into her office one day and said, Bravo, the television network, has this idea for a food show and they came to us to be their partner on the show. We have no idea, it could be crazy, it's a reality television show, which in 2005 was like unheard of in the food space, except for maybe Iron Chef, the original Japanese version. And reality TV to me meant like Big Brother and Fear Factor, and it was not a space that I was interested in.
1: Reality TV in the early 2000s rose as a genre with shows like Survivor, Big Brother, and Fear Factor. But its popularity was also met with criticism. Participants were often subject to humiliation for viewer enjoyment, such as being forced to eat bugs or being filmed in an embarrassing, intimate moment. The women will be trapped in that cage locked with over 10,000 Madagascar hissing cockroaches while the men are locked into this chair. But while Gail was no stranger to a challenge, reality TV still didn't exactly seem like a step up in her career. Food and Wine Magazine was, and still is, one of the leading authorities in the food and travel industry, boasting a large international audience and millions of followers. And Gail had a respectable role there. So going into reality TV was not without its risks.
0: Reality TV to me meant like big brother and fear factor. And it was not a space that I was interested in.
1: Why weren't you interested in? Because like you have all this- Because it didn't
0: exist, Sam. Reality TV at the time was not media. I was in magazines, I was a journalist, right? It's not the same thing as being on Survivor. And they said, it could be crazy, it could be a terrible idea, but we're gonna see if we can partner with them on this show. And if we do, they're gonna let one of our editors represent us as one of the judges who judges the food on the show, but it's about professional cooks and they really wanna do the first food show ever, reality competition show about professional cooking. So will you go and interview to get to be a judge on the show on our behalf? And I was like, that's ridiculous. Uh, It sounds like a terrible idea because there was no precedent for it. So I went on this interview, this screen test, and I had this very funny screen test with a man who would go on to become one of our executive producers. And then we didn't hear anything for like three weeks. And I kind of ignored it. I didn't get my hopes up because I didn't even know what it was. And they called me and they called Food & Wine and said, hey, uh, yeah, we liked Gail. We'd love for her to join us. We're going to shoot the show in San Francisco in a week from now. Tell her to like pack her bags and we're going to figure it out.
1: Were you excited or nervous? Because like you don't know what this is. Nervous,
0: pure nerves. I mean, I didn't know anything. I didn't know how the show was going to work. I didn't know if I could really do it. I didn't know if the show would be a complete failure. We'd be the laughing stock of the food universe. If they were going to just make it a ridiculous reality show of like absurd things, you know, eating maggots and eating like, you know what I mean? Like doing stupid things. I had no idea.
1: Fear factor with chefs. That's
0: how I imagined it. That is literally how I imagined it. But Food & Wine trusted Bravo and Bravo's intentions to discover the next generation of real culinary talent. And that's what we did at the magazine every day. So it kind of made sense. And I was like, okay, it was exciting. And so we went out there and we were all pure nerves. Tom and I I remember sat down together. We didn't, we'd met each other before, but we hadn't known, we didn't know each other well. And we sat down that first day on set. And I was like, what if this sucks? Like this could be terrible. And he was like, you're right, could be terrible. We're gonna do the best we can. And even after shooting those first 10 episodes of season one, we went back to our lives and it was not a sure hit. Even after the first season aired, like it, it, people liked it and it wasn't regarded as a laughing joke, but it wasn't by any means like a runaway hit. They re-aired the first season, I think, and then we got a second season from it. And that in itself was like unbelievable. That we got to season two, I have very clear memory of when we got to season two and I again had to leave my job and go shoot season two and I came back and I went to my publisher and I was like, this is getting hard because I'm like leaving my job. but I have this job here and I need somewhat, some more help to do it if I'm going to be going away. And like, if there's a season three, what's the plan? Because it's taking up more and more of my time. And I remember my publisher who I'm very close to and who put me up for the job looked at me and was like, season three, Gail. Like, Let's not get ahead of ourselves. Like, let's just calm down and cross that bridge when we come to it. And I had no idea what to expect. And here we are in season 18, and I'm still doing it.
1: For a lot of people today, being on TV sounds like an amazing opportunity, a chance to get exposure to the industry or boost your social media following. But Top Chef was new, and no one really knew what it was going to look like. Success wasn't guaranteed, and if it bombed, the show's legitimacy would be ruined, and potentially Gail's career would be ruined along with it. So yeah, of course Gail was nervous. I would be too. Her career was on the line. But now, 18 seasons later, Top Chef has become a staple of the entertainment world, and this rising fame brought Gail some unexpected encounters
0: first season episode one our guest judge was Hubert Keller who was is an iconic chef French chef in America but to sit at a table and have a drink with him and chat food and become friends and he is still someone I consider a, a great friend and mentor of mine because of that first day like those were the things that were just blowing my mind about even if we never did another season this experience for me and then I remember I can't remember if it was after season one aired, a couple things happened at the time. There wasn't like the social media, like there is now where you could like DM anyone, but there was chat boards, like Bravo's website had chat boards where you could write in about the show. And I remember I would go on those chat boards and look at them. And that was horrifying. That was my real first lesson. And wait, like you just put yourself in a very vulnerable public situation where now people don't consider you human and don't think that there's a person behind what they saw on television and they can just talk about you as if you were an object everything from like she has big ears to who is this person how does she know anything about food who is she she's some kid like what is her background that she gets to be on the show or they would critique they on my appearance, of course, everyone's appearance when you are on television is critiqued, but more so when you're a woman, uh, things I'd never thought about because I had never intended to be on television. And also I was on television for food. I wasn't a model. Um, so this was all very new, the way I had exposed myself personally. I remember sitting in front of my computer one night and my husband, came, my, he wasn't my husband at the time, my boyfriend, came home and saw me and he was like, walk away. That's the last time you're ever looking at those. Like walk away, it's only gonna just be destructive to you. And you have to be proud of what you do. You've done a great job. The show is a success. You have friends and people who love you and this is all just crap. Like it is the trolls of the world. And you have to have confidence that you're doing the best job that you can. And you were chosen to do that job for a reason. So I remember that happening. And then I also remember walking down the street in the West Village in New York and uh, walking with my boyfriend, and a girl walks by us walking her dog and she lets out a little like, huh? and she's like, you're Gail Simmons, right? And shortly after, I actually got a letter mailed to me at Food & Wine Magazine in the mail from her, a whole letter saying, I'm the girl who stopped you on the street with my dog. I met you, but you were so inspiring and I want to know more about what you do. And if you ever need an assistant, I want to apply for the job kind of thing. And that was like, I I had been that person not that long ago, right, where I had done that to Jeffrey Steingarten. um, And that was, let's say, five years, you know, in the course of five years, I had been from the person who had written the letter to the person who had gotten the letter. I remember being like, wow, this is a huge moment for me. I was like, not, it wasn't lost on me. Like, I, I really understood that that was really cool and I couldn't believe it. I remember the finale of the second season. I was very nervous about how the finale would air. And I was actually traveling the night of the finale. And I woke up, I couldn't sleep. I woke up at like six o'clock in the morning. The food critic from the New York Times, who doesn't ever write about television, writes about restaurants, and is the most respected food critic in America, was gonna write something about us. And I woke up early and I asked them to bring me a New York Times at my hotel room. And I remember running to the door and sitting in the doorway on the floor, flipping to the dining section. And it was the front page of the dining section above the fold, a a whole article about how Top Chef was the most legitimate food show done ever.
1: Top Chef's successful review reassured Gail that her career was on the right track. But fame has a dark side. And while most people see cyberbullying for what it is now, it really wasn't the case back then. And the toll it takes on mental health wasn't always obvious. Experts have compared constant comment reading to dopamine addiction, to a point where a person's mental state is determined solely by their number of hits or likes. But with that high comes the inevitable low. Reading negative comments can lead to depression, anxiety, and low self-esteem. It's a dangerous cycle, and one that we see more and more of as social media consumes us. But it was a cycle Gail was able to break out of, and it was simple. She just didn't engage with the negativity of strangers' opinions, and she realized they had no power over her success. Instead, she focused on the positivity her platform was creating and the win she had achieved for herself.
0: In the middle of season three, I realized that I couldn't do both of my jobs at Food & Wine before. And I went to my boss at Food & Wine and was like, I love doing this show, but I'm failing my team back here in New York, and it's just too difficult to be able to do both. We need to figure that out. And I put together literally like a Jerry Maguire mission statement for myself. And I proposed it and it took us a year. It wasn't until 2009 that she and I, it was like a full year of working through, rearranging my work for the magazine and becoming a contractor and giving up the other portion of my job to fully take on this role full time. And and also for myself, like... Admitting that now I was a food television person, which took a long time for me to wrap my head around and that that was a full time job in itself um, and that I could then pursue other avenues on my own through it. She and I worked at a contract and I said, I'm ready to walk away. And in fact, if you don't let me do this, then I will walk away because I know that I have leverage and I have a bargaining power now. I'm not just someone being doing what, I told, what I'm told. As an entrepreneur, I was starting my own business and I was learning how important negotiating was and that I held, I could hold the cards. And as like a young woman, I was always taught to just kind of be quiet and please everyone and say yes and please and thank you. Uh, but this was like a real moment for me in business that, you know what, this has value. I have more value. You need me as much as I need you and let's make it work or else I don't need to be doing it. Through my experiences with Top Chef and getting to understand the food television space, I saw very clearly that there were still very few at the time opportunities for women to lead culinary shows and have creative control, be producers and on camera and have their voices heard. There were still very few women in restaurants, leading restaurants and on television that certainly was reflected. Several years later in 2014, with a business partner who had a who has an incredible background in casting and entertainment, we formed a company called Bumble Pie Productions to work on projects that specifically give voice to women in the food industry and to help with my personal projects. But really, I'm not in front of the camera for most of the stuff we work on. It's finding projects to find new talent and to highlight women and and diversity in general, that's certainly expanded. And that's been a really fun, but very challenging uh, space because it's still an upward climb.
1: Top Chef was a trailblazer, but so was Gail. Like so many other young women, Gail was taught to listen rather than speak out. And while there's nothing wrong with being a good listener, environments that don't enable women to speak up only add to cultural silencing and suppression. Gail recognized this, so she pursued the steps necessary to break those barriers, ultimately gaining unwavering confidence in herself as a woman, a cook, a writer, and as a food critic. She's managed to become one of the role models that she herself had looked for back in culinary school. By founding Bumble Pie, Gail was able to foster an inclusive space where other women would have a chance to discover opportunity. Now, Gail seeks to provide a voice for women, and beyond that, for all lovers of food
0: so well, interestingly so what what we have seen and what top chef amateurs is it directly comes out of this very moment um, in food and you know really out of the pandemic top chef amateurs was born out of two things one in the last year and a half everybody's lives changed and most iconically for my industry restaurants came to a halt you know in march 2020 the world stood still and every restaurant in America had to close and that has been devastating for the restaurant industry in many ways but a very thin silver lining has been the extraordinary home cooks and home cooking became everybody's focus because we were all at home. Quality of home cooking over the last year and a half is undeniable and we'd never let home cooks into the Top Chef kitchen. Top Chef is just that. It's always every iteration of Top Chef, Top Chef Masters, Top Chef Just Desserts, Top Chef Duels has always really been about professional cooks at the highest level of the industry. But what this year saw was that actually home cooks cook differently, but are no less valued. And what they're able to do in their home kitchens is extraordinary. And we really wanted to celebrate that because they're we all need reasons to celebrate these days. And home home cooking is just as big a part of the, the quilt of food in this country as anything. And we decided to do a show that brought amateur cooks for the first time, head-to-head, two home cooks at a time every episode, into the Top Chef kitchen and give them a day in the life of Top Chef. And just let them loose and see if they could do it. And it was amazing. It was so different than Top Chef, but it was no less rewarding because I think it really shed light on our shared humanity.
1: I, I want to ask, like, what advice would you give to yourself um, at the beginning of this journey?
0: None of the steps on the ladder could have happened without stepping on the wrong before. And it really was for me about like doing the work about you want to be in food, learn about food, find great people to teach you, find mentors and put in the work, put your head down, listen more than you talk, taste everything. And that's like metaphoric for, you know, just dive in and do all the things, get your hands dirty. You know, I love this idea that I, that I think about for a long time, that bravery is not the idea of not being scared. Bravery is more, and taking the next step towards your dream is about being scared, but doing it anyway. And I think back about that a lot in everything I do, whether it's like teaching my kid to ride a bike or tasting a food that feels foreign and new, or going after that job that I always try to keep in my mind when I'm trying to do something new.
1: Being turned down by Martha Stewart Magazine wasn't the end of the line, nor was the relentless heat of an unforgiving kitchen or comment upon comment by internet trolls. All these things became a part of her story, learning opportunities that propelled her forward into the limitless world of food. Success was about risk-taking and resilience. It was about the refusal to stand down in the face of adversity. At the end of the day, Gail never knew what was going to come next. She didn't know she'd wind up working for Jeffrey Steingarten, or that she'd be chosen to be judge on Top Chef, or that she'd wind up embracing the influence of her mom. But Gail's relentless pursuit of those four words she once wrote, eat, write, travel, cook, is the reason why she can tell this story today. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, DM us at Finding Founders Podcast on Instagram, LinkedIn, or Facebook. Finding Founders is produced and hosted by me, Samuel Donner. Our chief of staff and operations is Jessica Lin. Our audio editing team lead is Adrian Tapia. With
0: support from Matt Fernandez.
1: Sophia Donner. Aaron Devereux, Nicholas Guzman. Ashley Jimenez. Tomas Tomas Renteria. Nathan Tower Callan Turnbull Lauren Yamada and Maura Lynch Our Outreach and Research Lead is Ankitun Nambiar with support from Miriam Arden Sarah Hobson Lisa Le Kenny Ong Melody Sopani
0: Cherise Tan and Marie Vaughn Our Writing Team Lead is Elizabeth Bowen with support from Natalie Agnew Abigail Agerdia
1: Elise Caldwell Harrison Duffy Alexandra hantalis Adams, Kylie McCreary, Beatrice Phillips, and Virna Seminario. Our
0: design team lead is Shruti Ramanand with support from
1: Sohail Amatya,
0: Tiffany Dang, Anna Rivelli, and Allison Wong.
1: The video editing team is Eli Lawrence with support from Melanie Mack and Linda Tapia. To see more of what we're up to, subscribe to our newsletter at findingfounders.com. Thanks again for listening